Welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues of the minerals, energy and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy. Yes, indeed. Welcome back or welcome to this month's edition of the AI Group podcast that asks the question, what on earth is going on in the transition to net zero and post-carbon economies, both here in, in Australia and around the world? And what do we need to know and understand about these broader strategic issues that are and will impact our business? Hello, my name is James Scotland and I'm the General Manager of Supply Chains for the Australian Industry Group. Joining me each episode to discuss and dissect the transition issues are two learned colleagues and good friends, my two amigos. Firstly, Tennant Reid, who is the Head of National Policy for Energy and Environment at the Australian Industry Group and a respected international voice on these issues. Hello, Tennant. G'day. Good to be with you, James. Thank you, mate. It's good to have you here. And Paul Hudson, Principal Consultant of Paul Hudson Advisory and the newly appointed CEO of Scaling Green Hydrogen Cooperative Research Centre. Paul is well known to many of us as a business and industry commentator. He's a passion for innovation, business improvements and industry development. Hello, Paul, and congratulations on the appointment. Yeah, thanks, James, and uh, hi, Tennant. Great to uh, great to be in for another conversation. Last episode, we had to survive without you, Paul, because you were away, and so Tennant and I struggled on one man down. Um, you were in uh, Europe and England for your annual holidays. I believe you caught up with some of your colleagues over there. How was the trip, and did you learn anything about the transitioning economy whilst you were away? Um, I look. I had a fantastic trip. It was probably the longest uh, holiday that I've had. Well, gee, for many, many years, um, and it was it was great actually. I mean, we spent a little bit of time in Italy and a bit of time in the UK, um, and yeah, there were people everywhere. Um, the, the certainly the tourism sector seems to be going strong, um, but across the UK, I mean, yeah. Anyway, we won't talk about things like Brexit, but uh, but I, I don't think that's a, a popular word. Um, around uh, these days, uh, if, it, if it ever was. Brexit remorse when I was there, there's certainly Brexit remorse. Yes, yes there certainly is, but there's a sense that they can't really go back, which anyway, who knows? There's, um, um, and and I, I was in Scotland, I was in the south of England, I was in London, I was in Liverpool, so I uh, got around a bit, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, and there's some really thriving parts of the UK as well. Liverpool was quite a surprise. I haven't been to Liverpool before, what a fantastic city. Um, and uh, had a great, great couple of great couple of days in Liverpool. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was a nice mix of seeing new things, uh, seeing friends and family, um, also keeping abreast of what was going on, and meeting a couple of people as well, like uh, Marika, who's one of our partners in the CRC from the Global Maritime Forum. Met her up with her for lunch in London, and yeah, that was a really good trip. Uh, glad to be back and uh, refreshed and excited by. What's what's happening? We crossed in midair, and uh, when I was in, uh, as, a, as I said before in, a, in, in other podcasts, when I was in Munich, I was surprised by how many uh, electric vehicles, how many electric buses, uh, trucks, uh, how quiet it was when the place is electrified. Uh, but also how, how it's a settled issue. They, they don't seem to be, they're talking about what's going to happen as it changes rather than, you know, the conversations we tend to have here, is it really happening or whatever. And in London, I was telling tenant last the time that we saw a lot of car charges just in, in the suburbs, just everywhere. So they're much more advanced than we are, it would appear, in the electrification of the cities. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of apartments as well, right? And so I was actually walking back from St. John's, uh, St. John's Wood tube station to our Airbnb uh, one night, actually, and there's this bright light on the street. And I was like, what's that? And it was, uh, there was a car plugged into uh, a smart pole. Um, doing electric vehicle charging on the street, um, and uh, and I hadn't seen a lot of that in Australia. I know it, I know there are parts of Australia that do that, but um, but yes, you're right. The the electric vehicles. Um, Glasgow had just put in place a not a congestion tax, but a, 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 a tax for coming into the city during certain hours. The same, the same in London has. Um, so particularly in things like mobility, that sort of EV and congestion and not allowing and having taxes on, for example, diesel vehicles coming in and all those types of things were um, uh, 
yeah, seem to be much more accepted, I guess. Um, and the whole system of carbon miles as well, when you go shopping, you, you know, you get a lot more sense of how far things have traveled as well. Um, there's a, a much more of a, that I think much more accepted in the consumer mindset as well, which I don't think we see a lot of here. Um, and given we live a fair way from a lot of other places, it'd be quite interesting if it did come in here, I think a bit. Uh, but that's certainly, I think, the mindset that's over there that we really need to be aware of when we're Australian companies looking to do business with other parts of the world about what 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 are the consumer sentiment and what's happening uh, in in the the operating environment, I guess, our, our market. Well, uh, two other interesting things that are happening in uh, in broader Europe. Uh, I will include the UK in this for this purpose. Uh, is that uh, they are close to, as I understand it, close to finalising um, targets across Europe for uh, the amount of access to regular charging and fast charging that each member state will seek to provide um, per registered electric vehicle or, or hybrid vehicle. So really taking seriously that uh, need for adequate supporting infrastructure. But two is that there's been a tremendous surge in uh, European imports of motor vehicles, uh, particularly EVs, from China uh, in the past year. Like uh, China has had a, a real emergence globally as an auto supplier uh, because of, uh, I think, how big a push Chinese manufacturers have made into EVs. They, they had a few goes at uh, breaking into the internal combustion engine market and uh, not a lot of brand success at that time. Uh, but in EVs, they're a combination of, you know, uh, a long-term push and, and some industrial policy and a broader phenomenon of Chinese uh, export competitiveness surging, maybe because of how badly their domestic economy is actually going uh, at the moment. But in any case, there's a lot of EVs coming out of China. Uh, they're going to Europe, they're going to other places. And it's posing some interesting questions uh, because, of course, European car makers have got ambitions to uh, now to turn uh, in a major way to EVs. They've been slower off the mark, obviously, than Tesla, uh, but uh, they're trying to get there. Europe's got all these ambitions for domestic uh, manufacturing. Uh, they've been really worried about getting crushed by US Inflation Reduction Act subsidies, which we might we might turn to later. But it's it's Chinese competition that is uh, maybe changing the game at the moment, and so you know, do others stay open? Uh, do they try and hold back the tide? What do they want more? Cheap EVs now, or building up industries, uh, even if it means slower uptake of clean vehicles? Yeah, we haven't even got to the catch up, but we'll come back to that because let's stay with that EV and the Chinese at the moment. The, induction, the Inflation Reduction Act in America, uh, IRA, that we were talking about in, on the last episode, <clears throat> at the last minute, the, the story appears to be at the very last minute before this billion-dollar, 190,000-page act got passed, Senator Joe Manchin asked that the words be changed to the only people outside America that could be part of the deal would, were ones that America had a free trade agreement with. And that accidentally excluded the European Union from uh, selling cars into America. Uh, there was a big argy-bargy and they met in you know, the, the top level. But at the end of it, there was a weasel word found that said, well, you can't sell manufactured cars into America, but you can lease. Um, and the <laughs> leasing of, America, of, of European vehicles went from, my, my, my figures are, they went from 3% uh, a year ago to 16% of the sales market. Uh, because the Audis, the BMWs, Mercedes all started being leased by Americans based on a very big marketing campaign saying, if you're buying an electric vehicle, the very best way to do it is to lease it. Uh, it was kind of accidental. Um, but that has left possibly, from my supply chain information, that's left a bit of a, a dearth of, <laughs> of vehicles in Europe because they're sending them all over to America. And the Chinese have said, hello, here's an opportunity. 
it is perhaps, and I appreciate your thought, it is this, you know, the, the challenge of when governments get involved in policy that affects markets, there's accidental, unintended, unintended consequences. Do you want to address that just for a second, perhaps, or pick up the, the whole EV issue anywhere you want to go, I guess? Well, the law of unintended consequences is the only one that Congress always passes, uh, as they say. Uh, That's very clever. That's very good. I'm going to just write that down now. (laughs) uh, The the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act is like simultaneously this incredibly significant, for the most part, very positive development that changes a lot of games globally. But it's also like this uh, very random thing that is like it is what has emerged out of a very complex sausage machine of US politics, personalities, uh, the particular configuration of numbers in the Congress at a point in time and a bunch of weird rules so that it's it's got all these provisions that at one point most of them have been the product of um, bright wonks uh, trying to get things done, but they've all like been refracted through several prisms on the way through and and the result is a bit messy. Um, and so that interaction is, I'm sure, not the last uh, weirdness that we're going to see out of all that. I should add that Joe Matson says, I meant allies, I didn't mean anything else. But what, yeah. you, what you mean and what you put the wording you put in is two different things. Yeah, and when you're the the critical swing vote senator whose merest whim could detonate uh, the entire climate agenda of the Biden administration, what you happen to have misread or misunderstood really matters. Uh, it's a hell of a way to to govern, but like that's what there is. Paul, you're an you're an economic development kind of guy. <laughs> What role should government play in in uh, the transition? I, I preface this by comments you've made before of saying we don't have a good overall policy setting to guide Australia. Uh, and in the other podcast that AI Group has, and the Supply Circles that I host, my recent guest, the CEO of AI Group, in his book, said exactly the same thing. We don't have a clear policy framework in which to move forward, despite years of Tenant Reed's action on this. Uh, we're still <laughs> struggling to, to get it right. I'm doing my best. <laughs> what, um, what's your thoughts on this? Um, look, I, I, I think there's a, there's a dilemma in some ways. I mean, I think Australia, I mean, Australia's done really well out of, out of commodity exports. I mean, let's be clear, you know, whether it's minerals, whether it's agriculture, whether it's, uh, whether it's uh, you know, uh, your, uh, gas, um, we've we've done well, and we've ridden a lot of global challenges with 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 those commodity exports. And so, I, mean, I think the IRA is interesting as well. So, you know, under the IRA, I mean, we're likely to be providing more critical minerals to the US. But it's but is it going to? What effect would that have on our potential to be a manufacturer and advanced manufacturer? Do we do we want to do both? Can we do both? Can we supply uh, that's a great commodities question. to the world and also be doing the downstream processing and manufacturing, or should we? What's our role in that? And I think there's sometimes yeah. a hesitancy about that, whether it's in battery minerals, whether it's in, you know, because we've done very well at at building big production capacity and and exporting. Um, and I think I don't think it's I think it's really clear to be honest, actually, and what we want what we want to be when we grow up, right? Uh, you know, as a as a country. Um, and I think. Um, We've we've got such a wealth of I think opportunities that sometimes that's a bit a bit tough as well. We've got a lot of choices that we could make. We're not we're not uh, we're not necessarily in a very narrow niche in some ways. But I think we've got lots of opportunities. I think that choice makes makes things difficult, right? Um, so so you know so I have I have some sympathy for it, but I also think that we're you know we're a long way from a lot of the rest of the world, and to have things like the lowest manufacturing self-sufficiency in the OECD is actually a real risk uh, for a place like Australia. So I think we we can do a little bit of have our cake and eat it as as well. I think, um, 
But uh, and, again, and, and government has a policy as a role in that. There is a need for government to yeah, particularly a federal government to to kind of set the set the put the settings in place. Yeah, and I was overseas. So, tenant, you probably are more across this, and hope and sorry if you're not. But the next year, <laughs> Australia, the mobilisation yes. report came out while I was away. Um, uh, I haven't had time to go through it yet, but that was I was really looking forward to that because I think we're very good at potentially setting the opportunity up, but actually getting down and rolling up the sleeves and implementing what needs to happen. I'm, I've been really looking forward to the mobilization report. Was it, did it give us a really clear roadmap of kind of what we should be focusing on and when and how and Perhaps how much? So I have to confess, I haven't been through the mobilisation report yet either. I did at the conference that I was at earlier this week, uh, I did hear a a new presentation from the Net Zero Australia people uh, where they seem to be narrowing in more on the onshoring version of uh, the clean export development scenario that um, scenarios that they they worked on. Uh, so the, this is referring to the, the difference between an exports vision that's about replacing our current fossil energy exports with clean energy exports one, one for one on an energy basis, which has some major challenges to it, uh, including that it probably doesn't make a lot of economic sense. And logistically, you'd have to build the famous seven Tasmanias worth of uh, renewable energy zones, mostly across the north of Australia. Uh, The alternative vision or a major alternative vision is uh, onshoring a major volume of energy intensive manufacturing that would otherwise be done uh, overseas with exported energy and exported minerals. So green iron, green alumina, green aluminium made in Australia, uh, which has got some strong economic logic to it if you assume that uh, at some point global steel markets are going to be willing to or required to pay the cost premium for green steel and the same for for other product markets. Uh, And if we uh, assume or, or work diligently towards Korea, Japan, and China in particular, being comfortable relocating some of their value chain to Australia. Those are two very important assumptions. But uh, if you have those two in place, the economics of uh, using hydrogen near where you make it seem a lot stronger than those of putting it on a ship, any which way of putting it on a ship and sending it overseas, if what you want at the other end is hydrogen for steel making. So uh, I think that that work is um, the most concrete effort we've seen at charting all the things that would be needed. I think the um, Australian Industry Energy Transitions Initiative work uh, on uh, a, a narrower set of sectors, but very important sectors, also really valuable. But I want to pick up on, on something that you said earlier, Paul, about can we do it all and, and choices? Because if we look at let's, maybe not seven Tasmanias worth, maybe just three or four Tasmanias worth of massive renewable energy zones across the country, if you consider that scale of possible development, And then you think about the critical minerals and transition minerals opportunities where like world lithium demand is projected to go up 42 times uh, by the IEA over the next few decades. Uh, Similarly, eye-popping numbers for a bunch of other commodities. We, uh, we, We really will face at a minimum big economic tensions in trying to pursue both of those things at once. And just think Mm. back to Mm. 2010, 2012, uh, the mining boom, uh, the the investment phase, getting all that iron ore uh, related infrastructure in place. And I remember for AI group members uh, in, in a bunch of manufacturing sectors were having a ghastly time 
during that period because the uh, exchange rate was really unfavorable from their point of view um, because of the surge in commodity uh, exports and, and the value of them. And uh, they were competing for labor and for all kinds of inputs and services with uh, a, a mega boom that was happening. And, you know, on balance, I think that whole experience was a, was a positive for the country. Um, but there were a lot of growing pains and we would be looking at similar tensions uh, to manage in any combination of flavors of mega green exports boom land. And um, I don't know, it's, it, it's going to be tricky. It's like good problems to have, but still problems. Well, we saw that in the LNG in, in, uh, in Queensland in particular, where they, was, where they were building four or five gas pipelines at the same time, uh, all, all going into Bowen. And they were just competing on absolutely everything. And at the same time, uh, Darwin was trying to build its industry. And they'd say, well, we'll pay overs for you to come up here. And next thing you know, just everything is just... You know, construction inflation, I guess. To add to the mix, Paul, it would be interesting to get your comment. I don't know if you've seen this, but it came out yesterday. Uh, the Canadian gas giant Atco says it has scrapped plans for one of the first commercial, uh, one of the first commercial scale green hydrogen projects in Australia, despite strong funding support from the Australian Government Renewal Agency, has put on hold of the project to build the. 10 megawatt green hydrogen electrolysis next to the Bright Energies wind farm in Western Australia uh, in place of, uh, because it says it is better to, uh, to build it closer to heavy industry than closer to the energy source. ACO says still confident green hydrogen can be delivered, but says it needs to be located closer to heavy industry where the green hydrogen can be used. Uh, in other words, they're saying uh, what we've been talking about, it needs to be close to, close to use rather than close to source. What's your immediate reaction to that? Is that just part of the normal trying to understand how the industry economics work or is that the way it's happening around the world? Um, I think, it, look, James, I think it's part of the usual rough and tumble of an emerging industry, to be honest. People are still working out what works and what doesn't. There's a lot of announced projects. Um, I think Australia's got something like 40% of the world's announced projects by value about, you know, in hydrogen, about $300 billion or $350 billion worth. Um, not all of those are going to go ahead. Um, and there's a, speed of, there's a speed of understanding and analysis that's happening, which means that something that might have been announced or looked good six months or a year ago um, has now been superseded, right? There's, so there's new information available or new understanding, or there's a sober assessment of actually what's going to work. Um, that means that not all of those projects are going to go ahead. And, and in some ways, it's much better uh, that a project proponent decides to not go ahead and hand the money back and do something else or, or not hand the money back and propose something else. Um, that, that's a healthy sign, I think, um, because there are, I think there are too many small-scale projects uh, because what we need to do is learn from each other. Um, it shouldn't be a case of, well, actually, we need to go and do a bus trial for hydrogen, right? Because there have been bus trials all around the world that you can learn from going back more than a decade. Um, so it's how do we learn from that and now do the next thing? So how do we learn from each other, collaborate, work together and go forward rather than keep duplicating effort and doing it the small scale because we think that's the way that we're going to manage our risk is by doing small things. But actually, there's a lot of risk in, you know, frittering your money away on things that don't actually need to be done. You just you, you can learn from others. Um, so, I, so, look, I, I, and I don't know the details of that project. As you say, it was yesterday. I was at a Scaling Green Hydrogen conference um, uh, or a Connecting Green Hydrogen conference. But, um, but yeah, you, you're always going to get a fallout. There's going to be, and, and right across the energy transition, we're going to have projects that uh, are announced and, and don't happen. Some projects are announced and constructed and then get mothballed, you know. Yeah, I, I don't think that's the concern. I, that's not my point. My, my, I guess my point was the fact that we're starting to really get the numbers worked out as to whether or not you do close to source or close oh. to, to end user. And for me, that reminds me of the critical minerals that, uh, argument. Do we, do we take the, the, you know, do we take, critical minerals out of the ground and turn them into batteries and then send the batteries all around the world? Or do we just send the, 
the raw ore. Certainly, uh, Dr. Jeff but, Wilson yeah. from my eye group says, you're not going to be able to do too much value add because it doesn't make sense. You've got to get close to end user. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I mean, it'll be different in different applications and even in different regions, right? Um, and different supply chains that exist. So back to, you know, tenant's point around, you know, can we do it all? Can we, um, if you look at the green iron or green, uh, green iron, green steel um, proposition, a lot of that's going to happen with mm. the customers mm. um, who are actually going to work out. So for example, in the iron ore space, I mean, POSCO is looking at doing a lot in Australia, right? Um, they're not doing that instead of what they do in Korea, but they're, they're logically looking at the, the economics and they're looking at the, the, the value chain. Um, and so we're starting to see that, I think, where Australia will be partnering with customers. So rather than an either or, it's kind of looking across the value chain, looking across that spectrum and saying, well, does it make sense to do more close to uh, where the energy is, for example? Um, uh, is there some things you can do in different places? And I think the, 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 I think the pandemic really changed global supply chains anyway. I was having this discussion with international delegates at the conference the last couple of days, is that companies are now putting in place much more of a global strategy um, they're not like everything here and we just buy everything in or we have 15 different suppliers, um, but it all comes to one source. This one point uh, approach doesn't work anymore. You need, you need a number of facilities around the world. You need a number of suppliers because you, you don't want to put yourself at risk from a, a, a supply chain disruption. Um, so I think that's a really important part that we're, we're um, people don't want to be precarious. And it's not just an economic or a transport kind of thing. It's actually, uh, um, it's a geopolitical thing as well. It can be layers of complexity in, in why relationships form and why people take certain approaches. This is a, a great chat. The idea of this podcast is just to unpack the issues. So uh, keep unpacking, Tenet, you were going to say. So I was going to add that there is a thing that is economically importantly different between uh, these questions about what we do with uh, green hydrogen or, what, frankly, any flavour of hydrogen uh, and you know where you make it versus where you use it and the conversation about value adding to uh, rare earths or, or lithium processing or, or whatever, which is... It is tremendously expensive to ship hydrogen anywhere. Like pipelines are not so bad, but putting hydrogen in by via any means onto a ship and getting that ship to the customer is just for physics reasons is going to be uh, quite expensive compared to putting coking coal on a ship or LNG on a ship. Particularly if you keep it as a gas, I think you've got to be minus 600 degrees or something outrageous uh, to keep it on the ship, which is a flooding, flooding nightmare, I would imagine. Uh, you need to be, uh, what is it, uh, 20 Kelvin? Uh, a very low temperature indeed, so a lot of ex energy expenditure to chill the hydrogen. Uh, but also even chilled, liquid hydrogen is not that uh, dense volumetrically speaking uh, and so you will just for a if what you want to send is like a petajoule of uh, energy to korea uh, you need a bigger volume of ship to carry that and it's got to be a more advanced kind of ship that is even better insulated than an lng tanker and uh, there's a lot of expense there now that expense will reduce but a, a big part of how it reduces is just that the hydrogen and the energy to make the hydrogen gets cheaper. And so the amount that you waste in the process of getting it to a distant customer gets less economically important. But um, re using renewable energy at the, um, at the point of production gets cheaper too. So what I'm, the point of all this is just that the economics of what stuff we do with hydrogen is going to be different to the economics of stuff we do with coking coal and LNG today. And that can be a huge advantage for some visions of what we do in Australia. Um, we might not be a, so much a hydrogen export superpower as a superpower in the use of hydrogen for other mm -hmm. export mm -hmm. industries. Um, but um, it's an interesting space because it's 
it's different to today. We've got, to, we've got to look at this in a different different prison, which uh, we're, we're going to start the podcast by doing a catch-up of what we've all been doing. Uh, so let's do a catch-up. Paul, you've been at the Connecting Green Hydrogen uh, Conference in Melbourne. Uh, one of the reports out of that, I, wasn't, I didn't go, but one of the reports was that uh, uh, the conference highlighted where Australia needs to focus, particularly in terms of securing offtake and partnering which suggests, it picks up sort of what Tennant is saying, that you know, we really need to figure out what we're going to do with this hydrogen, not just keep announcing big projects and making the stuff. What are we doing with it? Is that what you got out of the conference or, or what, uh, and, and or what else did you get from the conference? Um, look, I think that's a really, it's a really important part. And uh, look, in our Scaling Green Hydrogen Cooperative Research Centre, we've got users involved because uh, having the market pull through, having the demand is going to be really key. Um, you often hear about in, in any early industry, you hear about this chicken and egg approach, you know, kind of, well, actually, do we build up the supply, but who actually wants it? And people don't want it until you build up the supply. So you kind of get stuck. So you actually need to get, um, I guess, people working together across who, who are potentially the, the enablers and the, the energy suppliers. Uh, with the distributors and then with the users and actually getting them working close together. And I think that's happening more. Um, I think the whole thing's maturing. Um, there's certainly a lot more sober, I think, discussion at these kind of events than they have been in previous years. Um, and Not quite so Pollyanna anymore? Well, look, I, I think, I think as, it gets, as things get to where people have got announced projects and they're thinking much more about delivery, um, they, uh, they, they're starting to make decisions around, well, do we go ahead with this project? Who do we work with? Um, we, you know, we need to reach out to other people. We can't do this alone. Um, and I think that's really healthy. Um, I think um, I'm probably much more um, positive now around it than perhaps uh, I might have been even a year ago um, was that I think we're about to see, you know, some big projects getting getting much closer to FID and, and the like. We're, we're seeing, you know, big projects and they will actually, I think, boost the optimism um, uh, and, the, and, and, and also start helping build out that value chain a little bit as well. There's a lot of people, I think, waiting for the industry to go ahead. Um, but I think the positioning of it is becoming much perhaps healthier perhaps more sustainable as well, that it's not just hydrogen as this uh, magic uh, molecule that can basically solve everything, which might have been what it sounded like three, four, five years ago, to something which is now, it's now a tool in a toolkit. Um, and how do we deploy it against other alternatives which may be better in different applications? Um, and, and I think that pragmatic approach is good for everyone. I haven't been to a hydrogen conference for a couple of years. Last time I went, uh, there was over three days, there was the state minister for hydrogen from every state speaking. And every one of those ministers said that their state was the leader in hydrogen and will be for many years to come, uh, which, uh, including the Northern <laughs> Territory, by the way, and, and Tasmania, uh, both have got reasonable claims. Um, Tenor, how, how are you seeing the hydrogen industry develop? So, you know, there's a, there's a famous uh, chart of, for, for all kinds of technologies that, that go through a, a hype cycle and uh, they surge to a peak of inflated expectations and then crash to a trough of disillusionment. And then if they're, if they're lucky, uh, they, they gently work up the slope of enlightenment. Uh, and I think I think we are past peak hydrogen hype and into a much more sensible place for the most part of, well, what are the things it's actually going to be useful for, which is like definitely some stuff and probably not some other stuff. And uh, what are we actually going to be doing to concretely make this happen rather than waiting for some mad person to come along and uh, from from outside Australia and buy everything uh, that that we can be ready to supply uh, with with taking no risk ourselves. 
Uh, I think that the US policies, the European policies, and even the emerging Australian Hydrogen Head Start program, like they all put some real money on the table. I guess $2 billion counts a little bit as real money for the Australian one, but it's it's small real money these days. But th- th- those are going to make some concrete stuff happen. They're going to uh, provide sufficient um, financial support at the supply side or the demand side to ensure that uh, there's like substantial development globally and some locally. That's going to push that technology of electrolysis is going to get cheaper with more deployment. Uh, the more deployment there is, the faster it gets cheaper. Uh, and all these policy pushes are speeding up that that technology considerably. So it's, there's a lot of concrete nitty gritty to work through, but um, it's very positive, I think. Two of the issues that seem to be emerging is I read yesterday that uh, there is... I better get the quote right so that I don't uh, I don't say it wrong. The quote was, uh, another issue seems to be the challenge of whether hydrogen can be pumped into existing gas pipelines as a substitute for carbon gas. Is that is that an issue? It's an issue people like to argue about. Um, mm, interesting comment. So expand. Well, um, I reckon Paul have some views too, but... What are they talking about in the first place? And then what's the argument? Okay, so uh, it is in gas distribution networks, it is physically possible to uh, blend in a portion of gas without uh, hydrogen into the gas network uh, without making much in the way of capital investments in upgrading it. But there's a maximum maximum percentage, isn't it? Like 35 or something percent you can't... Well, generally the estimates are somewhere between 10% and 15% by volume. And uh, that would be a, a smaller number by energy content uh, because hydrogen is a, is a less dense uh, gas at a given temperature than methane is. Uh, so you can do it. And then potentially with like the right plastic pipes and different appliances at the, at the end, uh, you could potentially go all the way to 100% hydrogen. Should you? is the question that people really argue about. And it would be very convenient for... So, so you're saying that I could cook my steak at home using, uh, turn the gas on and it's not gas anymore. It's, it's, it, well, it's still gas, but it's hydrogen, not uh, not the current one. Right. Yeah. But you, should... So you could if you've changed over your stovetop because your current burners won't work. Uh, and also you might have... Uh, an indoor air pollution problem with uh, all the uh, oxides of nitrogen that um, your hydrogen burner will be producing. Um, so you could do it. Should you? It would be very convenient in some ways. You could, like, a lot of people could keep doing more or less what they're doing today with, um, in terms of uh, operating infrastructure, making appliances, uh, the, the whole uh, ecosystem. Uh, around natural gas consumption could transition like with with only moderate uh, disruption, but s- some considerable expense. But uh, a lot of people look at that and go, oh, that doesn't make sense. Uh, it takes a lot of energy to make hydrogen and you're wasting a lot There's of it. There's got to be a better solution. God, surely. So uh, there, are, there are heated arguments and there are arguments among AI group members, it is looking like for the domestic usage of uh, gas currently for heating water, heating space and cooking, that electrification is going to be the the dominant solution. Um, But governments in Australia, other than the ACT government, have not yet made a definitive call on that, Victoria is looking very electrification oriented, but uh, I think we'll probably see a more definitive call from them later this year in their next gas substitution roadmap. Uh, but it, this is still technically an open question, and there's look any which way we go on uh, transitioning gas use. That's a huge build out of either no. electrified appliances or. hydrogen compatible appliances, it's a lot to do. 
We've alluded to it before in uh, in podcasts. We might come back and, and address it in detail because it is a big big question about how you change from um, a lot of gas in pipelines around Australia. Well, just to finish off, well, two points to finish off the hydrogen conversation. There seems to be uh, an assumption, uh, a decision by the mining industry to go for electric haulages, um, you know, hauling the, the minerals out of the ground up to the processing plant. They're going electric, uh, which is seen, again, uh, probably controversially, seen as a, uh, a, a punch in hydrogen's head. <laughs> Would you see it that way, or is it just part of the, the, the evolution of what sort of energy sources we're going to next? It's, look, I, I see it as part of the evolution of energy sources. There is going to be a mix. There's going to be a, a toolkit. There's going to be a range, a portfolio of options that people are going to use. And I really like, Tenant, uh, that, that sense of could we do it or should we do it? Uh, because a lot get a lot of the uh, we talk a lot about what we could do. We don't always talk about what we should do. And I think the maturing of the discussions is very much around rebalancing that towards what should we do. And that's why when people start changing their investments, changing their approach, uh, that's what we should do when we when we understand more about an issue and and what makes sense uh, to do. And so yeah, there will be electric haul vessel. There'll be electric. Uh, you know, locomotives, there'll be hybrid options. There'll be all sorts of things that people put in place for their specific circumstances. Um, uh, let's see. I mean, uh, while electrolyzers will get scaled, maybe there'll be new battery uh, chemical technologies and all sorts of things as well that are being developed as well. So um, we should always be thinking about what's the least cost, safest, most efficient, most beneficial path to decarbonisation in a particular application. And sometimes that just means mode switching, maybe it means being more energy efficient, maybe it means you know, turning things on at different times or, or buying new equipment or whatever it is, right? So there's, there's, a, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, no symbol, there's no single answer in any of this, right? And I think if people are looking for a single answer, they, they're, they're either going to waste a lot of money and time or they're going to be sadly disappointed and maybe both. Good, good um, advice. You'll be very wise since coming back from your holidays, uh, Paul. Um, one last question, it, and just for our, our listeners, what do you mean by scaling green hydrogen? What's the scale? What's the, you know, what's, what's the end point? Well, so for, so for us, you know, we, we see, and again, you know, I think uh, Tenon talked about the different colours of hydrogen. I mean, we've uh, we, we, we talk about scaling green hydrogen because it's very much, uh, uh, I think, building off of the advantages that particularly Australia's renewables have. So, so for anyone that's not clear on that, green hydrogen is when you, create, uh, you use Electricity. a uh, renewable energy source to, for the electrolysis process that makes hydrogen. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so, um, and look, I mean, there's a whole bunch of different carbon intensities as well. We've got to look at the whole life cycle of these things. But... Uh, but generally, we're looking at how you scale that up. Australia's largest operating electrolyzer is only 1.25 megawatts. Um, we kind of went, there's a lot of projects happening, um, but we're, they're drawing from a pool of uh, talent, uh, available land, uh, port infrastructure, uh, electrons, uh, fresh water, um, critical minerals going into electrolyzers and fuel cells and other enabling infrastructure. Um, if all of these hundreds of small projects decide they want to go big, um, they're all going to jump. They're all going to they're all going to bump into each other, right? Uh, they're all going to be constrained. So we kind of said, well, we don't need to be in the the small scale stuff. What we need to think about is what happens if we uh, if we if 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 we really do need a lot of green hydrogen um, and in different applications. Um, we don't get too much into the you know what it's exactly going to look like, but we know that green hydrogen is going to play a role because we already produce hydrogen. It goes into a lot of chemicals, um, but it's grey hydrogen. It's used through steam methane reformation, um, and we will at least want to replace some of the the chemicals that we have with non fossil fuel equivalents. And so we look at that and go, uh, we actually backcast. We went by twenty forty. If we had a terawatt of electrolysis, which is eight hundred thousand times the largest operating one, what would that look like? Um, how would that operate? You know, how would you set up a system 
to do that. And also... That's, that's a scale then, Paul. That certainly is a scale. It's well, big thinking. But it is. And I don't know whether we will need a terawatt of electrolysis because things like exports um, and other things where that will be done. Um, one of the opportunities and also challenges or one of the things uh, is that fossil fuels have been globally traded um, and they're done in big centralized uh, production and distribution, everything from mining to uh, to processing to shipping is all done very large scale. But you look at uh, renewables particularly, and even fresh water and fresh water, you can be much more uh, distributed. Um, these are distributed, therefore you can do them in smaller scale. You can do them closer to where they're needed, which means you can create energy independence. Maybe you can cut down transport, uh, uh, you know, kind of supply chains and costs and carbon miles. Um, so there are opportunities to do things differently as well. So it doesn't have to be large scale. So even when we talk about scaling, it's not necessarily about just bigger is better. It can be about big networks and replicating uh, uh, learnings rapidly as well. So, so that's, what we, that's what we mean by that. And it needs everyone working together because you're as weak as the leak, uh, you're as strong as the weakest link in that value chain. Uh, so if we don't sort out water, if we don't sort out First Nations engagement and social license, if we don't work out the talent issue, if we don't work out uh, uh, electrolyzer refurbishment and end of life and even the critical minerals that go into them, um, then the whole thing won't work. Um, so we so we need to so what we've done in the scaling green hydro cooperative research center we've got ninety three partners uh, right across what we think are the building blocks of the sector to come together and co co develop practical solutions that work across that uh, across that value chain. Um, but it's not we're not the you know we'll be we're working and learning from others um, uh, because we're just one piece of a puzzle. Ninety three partners sound like your scaling partners cooperative <laughs> centre. Well, it's a look. It's a it's a it's a quite a complex value chain. This is not a linear path. It's not a you know electricity plus water equals hydrogen and then <laughs> ship it off to a customer. Right? There's 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 a lot of complexity in that. You, it's a new industry, and it and it's not as linear, and it can't be as controlled as potentially doing a coal value chain um, or an even an LNG value chain. It, it pulls in a lot of commons types issues and, and, and contestable, uh, you know, talent, land, capital, technology, resources. Not being facetious, being, being honest, I think that uh, excellent explanation um, is why you're now leading that. It's a, it's a, a, a brilliant Diatribe. Thank you very much. Um, Tenor, do you want to add before we, I've got one more issue before we finish? Sure. Uh, do you want to add anything to that? So, just one more thing about scale, uh, the, the scale in scaling. That 10 megawatt uh, electrolyzer proposal that we talked about earlier, if that had gone ahead, that might produce, say, a thousand tons of hydrogen a year. The hydrogen Head Start program from the feds might stretch to supporting. 100,000 tonnes of hydrogen a year. Europe targets importing 10 million tonnes of hydrogen a year by 2030. The world currently uses about 90 to 100 million tonnes of grey hydrogen a year, largely for the chemicals and petrochemical sectors. And will scenarios. That, uh, will that store usage continue in the future, or will that, that, oh, that change? So, the, all of it for fertilizer and explosives? Yes, right. we okay. will need that. Yep. Um, even if you need less explosives uh, for mining most minerals than you do for coal, and we won't be mining so much coal in the world, uh, we're still going to need a lot of explosives. There's going to be a lot of mining. And then uh, scenarios for um, for hydrogen demand in a in a clean global economy range from 200 to 500 million tons a year. So, you know, we are we are at the uh, the jelly baby scale of um, of clean hydrogen industry at the moment, and uh, we would be aspiring to get to. Uh, this is becoming a terrible <laughs> metaphor, but jelly babies the size of the Statue of Liberty uh, before too I was, long. I was hanging on bated breath to see how you were going to save yourself from that 
<laughs> the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man of the hydrogen production sector is is our possible destiny. Great conversation regarding hydrogen. We were going to start way back, you know, in, when we started talking uh, about what you've been doing, Tenet. You've been in Darwin. Quick pro, uh, summary of oh. uh, the Darwin visit. The Developing Northern Australia Conference, uh, which has run been run for a, a decade, uh, invited me up to uh, talk about clean development opportunities, including um, hydrogen and uh, critical minerals. And I got the chance to hear from a lot of different uh, sectors and uh, kinds of people about all sorts of views of the North and its development. I heard some some stuff from uh, the uh, the gas sector about their hopes and dreams regarding the Beetaloo, uh, and some some not altogether accurate uh, expectations they have of how high uh, world gas demand and Australian gas demand is going to be uh, over the next few decades. Uh, but there's certainly it's a very contested space, and we had both uh, like vigorous protesters disrupting a talk by uh, the the gas sector, and we had plenty of people in the room giving the um, the gas industry uh, spokesman uh, a, a round of applause for keeping his cool during that um, that altercation. So. It's a contested space and uh, there's a lot going on. But I, I would uh, recommend that conference to people who, who want to get a sense of the breadth of, uh, of industries and voices and social and uh, like uh, the skills challenges, the health challenges in the North. Uh, there's a lot going on. It's uh, an interesting area. There's, uh, there's, we've got lots of natural resources, including a lot of sun, um, and they've got a lot of... Uh, very motivated people, but but in the scale of things, not a lot of people. Uh, no. So you, you can you can do things quickly, but there's also challenges. Yeah, it's been a good chat, um, gentlemen. We need to go. Uh, I was just wrap up by mentioning to Paul that we talked in the last episode that the uh, law of unintended consequences. The American uh, Act is called the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, and American politicians get all funny when you mention the IRA. So apparently it's known more commonly as IRA now. Is that right, Tenet? Well, it depends. I think I think Joe Biden doesn't mind the IRA too much, and a bunch of uh, Irish heritage uh, American politicians don't mind. <laughs> but but people in the UK get a bit jumpy. So you know, different strokes for different folks. Uh, law of unintended consequences. Yeah, I heard that actually at the conference yesterday about British politicians wincing every time they heard IRA was was uh, uh, was mentioned. But uh, yeah, so we'll call it IRA. I like that. Understandably, it was a you know very much a in their face in many ways issue the IRA, but that was before. Anyway, we're going to go. Uh, well, that's it for another episode of uh, What on Earth. Uh, thanks, Tenet. Good fun as always. And thank you, Paul. Thanks, James. Thanks, Tennant. Thanks to everyone for listening. If you have any feedback on today's uh, uh, conversation or ideas for the show, things we should talk about, or if you just want to give me some feedback, hit me up at uh, james.scotland at aigroup.com.au. That's uh, james.scotland with one T at aigroup.com.au. Or to any of our LinkedIn pages, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, And we'll be back in a month to talk about the big issues in the transitioning economy and to ask the question, what on earth is going on?